when you change the way somebody dances with the most important partner in their life, you are changing so much. Mm -hmm. You change how they deal with their emotion. You change how they see other people. You change their models of self. You start to create secure bonding. And what we know from all the research in psychology is being able to securely bond with another person is associated with every factor predicting resilience and health that psychology has ever named. Welcome to the Mindspace Podcast. I'm Joe Flanders. Thanks for joining me. I've been meaning to do an episode on relationships for a while now. And it's mostly because I'm increasingly convinced that more than any other aspect of our lives, relationships probably have the biggest impact on our overall health and well-being. In the end, I'm glad I waited until now, the week of Valentine's Day 2020, because I think I landed the perfect guest. Dr. Sue Johnson is an author, clinical psychologist, researcher, professor, and very popular public speaker. She's best known for developing emotionally focused couples therapy, which is a highly influential innovation in the field of couples therapy. EFT is based on the modern science of love and attachment, and its effectiveness is supported by an impressive body of research. As you'll hear, Sue is extremely knowledgeable and passionate about her work, so much so that I had some difficulty getting a word in edgewise uh, for the first part of our conversation. But after she covered the basic principles of EFT, we eventually settled into some meaningful exchanges about the role of relationships in mental health, how therapists can help, and why she's convinced that improving people's relationships is the best way to change the world for the better. I'm proud to share that Mindspace has EFT couple therapists on staff, and you can visit our website for more information about them and how to set up an appointment. And if you'd like to stay up to date on the latest news on the podcast, please sign up for our newsletter at mindspacewellbeing.com slash newsletter. And without any further delay, here's my conversation with Dr. Sue Johnson. Hey, Dr. Sue Johnson, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be here. All right. How's the day so far? Uh, it's lovely here. I live in Victoria on the West Coast. It's a beautiful day. Um, and um, after this talk, I'm going to take my doggy down to the beach and look at the mountains. So it's a good day. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I was in Victoria this past summer and really fell in love with that city. So you're very lucky in my eyes. Yes, I just moved here from Ottawa, and I do feel lucky, actually. It is a beautiful city. Very cool. So what do you do over there in Victoria? <laughs> well, um, I, have, I left the University of Ottawa, where I was for many, many years, and I have a big institute in Ottawa uh, that I was also very sorry to not be able to just walk in there and see everybody, and it was... We did research and we trained people, and we, it's the center for our, our big not-for-profit organization called the International Center for Excellence in Emotionally Focused Therapy, ISEFT. We have, um, oh, we're in about 
40 countries and we have about 70 communities all over the world linked with us and about 70 trainers and um, it's kind of a hub uh, and I, I, I came to the west coast but it doesn't matter in this day and age you know you can do so much on the internet but um, certainly since I've been here things have just kept going we're um, we've I put a new book out for mental health professionals in January and um, that's been very interesting and we're we're revising all our trainings all over the world and so I'm still doing what I've always done I'm writing and we're even doing a big research study in Ottawa Victoria and in Colorado looking at EFT which is really well known as a couple intervention and has I think really changed the, the field of couple therapy at this point. Um, but we are looking at using EFT. We've always done it with families and now we're putting out that EFT isn't confined to couples and couple interventions and even educating couples. It's also a very powerful um, therapy for individual distress. So we're writing about that and I'm giving um, podcasts like this. In other words, I'm doing what I've always done. I'm <laughs> writing, talking to people and um, having fun and um, starting to see clients again out here. I I really need to see clients. I, I still am intoxicated with the privilege of sitting in a room with somebody who's trying to change their relationship or their most precious relationships or – um, change how they are in the world and how they feel about themselves, sitting in a room with somebody and going into their emotional world and watching them grow and change. I still find that as intoxicating as I did 30 years ago. It's um, And I learn. I learn from every client I see. So um, next week I start my practice here in Victoria. So, so it's I'm still doing what turns me on <laughs> and, and what I like to do in the world. That's very exciting that you're ramping up again. Um, yes. In my world, namely clinical psychology, your household name or, or a celebrity, particularly for all the impact you've had in the field of couples therapy, there may be listeners that aren't quite familiar with your institute and, and your impact and all that. I wonder if we can just briefly talk about couples therapy. Sure. I'm about 40 years old and um, I'm in a community of people. Many of us have little kids and, um, you know, having kids is, is a big strain on a marriage. I mean, there's also yeah. wonderful moments, but it's, it's stressful. And uh, we're seeing some couples breaking up in our community and I'm just curious, like, who do you see and under what circumstances should couples consult? And what is it like to to go into couples therapy? Well, I mean, I think um, hopefully um, the answers to those questions you just asked have changed over the last few years, at right. least from our point of view. Um, I think, and I've written about this quite a lot, I think... Until the last, and say, oh, I don't know, um, we started doing EFT um, in the late 80s. It really got going then. But until about the turn of the century, um, I think it's reasonable to say 
that couple therapy was considered kind of the most random, the most difficult therapy to do, the most random, and, um, you know, kind of like nobody really knew what they were doing. People would just do their very best as good clinicians to help couples sort of out of this these dreadful fights. And occasionally it would work, but, you know, the research said it wasn't very effective and um, certainly the clinical wisdom was that couple therapy was difficult. Nobody really knew what they were doing. I think that's changed. Um, but the essential thing that's changed, and of course this is part of our work, is, and I've argued this in my books for the public called Hold Me Tight and, and another one called Love Sense, the essential thing that's changed is that you have to understand um, what the central problem is in relationships and you have to have an understanding of love and loving because that's what people want. They just don't want to make deals about the chores. They want to create a loving relationship. And we never had that. So it's like we would be going in helping couples and everyone had a slightly different idea. All the different models of therapy had a slightly different idea. But we didn't actually know, you know, what we were dealing with. So around the turn of the century, and I'm very proud that I think my work was part of this, um, basically the research started up on adult attachment mm -hmm. and adult attachment theory. And from my point of view, that has given us a map to love and loving. You know, for as long as civilization has been around, we've all agreed that romantic love is a mystery, it's random, you fall in, you fall out, it's probably got a best before date, it's mostly about sexuality and infatuation, and, you know, every philosopher and every poet and everyone has kind of agreed about this. So um, it was quite revolutionary for my social psychological colleagues like Phil Shaver and for me to start standing up and saying, actually, that's not true anymore. We have a science of love, and that changes everything because we have a map. We know what goes wrong. And certainly after the last 20 years, I can stand up in front of people and say, we understand romantic love. We know why it's so important. We know what goes wrong. And what you understand, you can shape. We know how to put it right. And, of course, that doesn't mean that we can help every relationship. Sometimes relation, people have so damaged the trust between them and so damaged the bond between them that really there's no going back. Um, and sometimes people come into therapy just to clarify that really they've, they left a year ago or they don't want to work on their relationship. But in general, if you have a map, if you understand the drama in front of you, you understand the powerful, powerful emotions, the music that's playing in the dance between the couple, um, then you can go in and focus down. Your, you can be on target. You can um, know specifically what factors you have to focus on. You know, for one thing, uh, couple therapy for years and years and years, just ignored emotion. Your emotion was considered part of the problem. You know, couples fought, so you tried to stop them fighting and tried to get them to be more reasonable or more skilled, use skill sequences in their communication, which, of course, only works when they're in therapy with you. It doesn't work 
when they're uh, feeling vulnerable outside, they don't use those skill sequences. The evidence is teaching couples communication skills has no impact at all on their um, improved satisfaction in their relationship. So, you know, but once you understand what's going on, then you can start to really make a difference in a very systematic way. And our research studies tell us that indeed we can do that. And not only that, but as attachment science has grown over the last 20 years, we understand exactly what this means for people. Um, you know, attachment is basically the broadest, most profound, most empirically validated uh, developmental theory of personality that psychology has ever come up with. But we still haven't really used it in clinical work, not from my point of view. And um, the thing that's special about it is that attachment theory and science doesn't take people out of context. It puts people squarely where they belong. It sees us as social bonding mammals. So it puts people in the context of their most important relationships, where they define themselves, they define the safety of their world. So the exciting thing for me is that as we've cracked the code of love and as we've created powerful interventions and shown that they can work, we've also understood that when attachment science says the biggest resource for us as human beings is our sense of connection with other people, we've really understood what that means. I'll give you a good example. Um, there's no research in Canada for um, any couple interventions. There's no research in Canada for psychotherapy, period. But we just got an enormous grant. Um, I can't remember exactly who. I believe it was the uh, Canadian Heart and Stroke Foundation. We got an enormous grant with my colleagues um, in Ottawa, working with the Heart Institute in Ottawa, to um, show that the education program we developed that was based on my book, Hold Me Tight, um, to show that it can help couples where one person's had a cardiac event, one person has cardiac disease, and that it can help couples, both people stay out of depression, both people go through this transition, become a team where they both work on the health of the person who's had the heart attack so they don't have another heart attack, motivates the person to go to the gym to take their meds, changes their attitude, and what we believe will result in less repeat heart attacks. So the medical community is, that's a good example of how the medical community are starting to understand that this theory of love, attachment theory, is a biological theory, and it's also a social theory, and it's the most amazing resource for us as psychologists. I definitely want to get into that, and I want to unpack a couple of things that you said. I also wanted to say that this was one of the more appealing aspects of your work that really turned me onto it, which is this notion that there is a science here, and there is a science indicating that your approach to couples therapy is effective, and yeah. there's actually skillful and unskillful ways of responding as a therapist in these sessions. Like you could be right and you can be wrong. And that's right. This is this is really quite interesting. And I got to tell you that I, I I was seeing a man in my practice, uh, and I ended up referring him to work with a, 
someone who's very well trained in motion focused uh, couples therapy. And he came back to see me after the the couples therapy was done. And he's like, he says, Joe, it's, it's so strange. It's like, I go there and I have to learn stuff and it's structured and like we get better. And I never thought that was out there. Like, thank you so much. Your <laughs> so I, you know, that was my experience, you know, just um, speaking to what you said earlier about, you know, maybe the, the, this, the whole field of couples therapy being a little bit of a mess or something like this is the, maybe the prejudice that some people have, but it really is a different thing now. Yes, I think it is. And um, I mean, it didn't, it, it's not magic. It didn't happen overnight. We, I and my colleagues and my wonderful research team and my wonderful institute, um, you know, we're, we're very good at building teams. We're attachment people. <laughs> so we're very good at building safe teams. And it really is true that you can do things. If you have a powerful team, you can do almost anything. And we've worked very, very hard over the years. There's now um, over 20 positive outcome studies for emotionally focused therapy um, with couples. And, you know, it's time we did one with families, but we haven't yet. Mm -hmm. We will be doing one. We're doing one right now on EFIT, mm -hmm. Emotionally Focused Individual Therapy for Depression, Anxiety, and the After Effects of Trauma. So, you know, we're doing that and we can do research. But, you know, basically, we are, it boils down to um, a very dedicated team of, of clinicians who, um, because we've created a safe culture, um, we watch. We all get together once a year. We watch each other's work. We watch each other's tapes. We say where we get stuck. We talk about how best to teach this stuff in Finland or in Iran, you know, or you know, in Egypt or in Australia. And um, in many ways, I look at it sometimes, and I think we're all quite crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, people talk to me about, am I going to retire? Hmm. For me, that's a very bizarre question uh, uh, because this stuff grabs you. It's evolving. You know, we, we the Gottman Institute um, in, in the States, um, I'm friends with John Gottman, and he used to tell me that he would get $10 million research grants. <laughs> and I would, as a Canadian, academic, I would want to just weep, you know, but um, it didn't matter in the end because we didn't do it with money and we did it with passion. Hmm. And so I think we have made huge progress. And um, I guess I'd like clinicians to know that when you do good couple therapy, when you change the way somebody dances with the most important partner in their life um you are changing so much mm -hmm. you change how they deal with their emotion you change how they engage with others when they're vulnerable you change how they see other people you change their models of self you um you start to create secure bonding and what we know um from all the research in psychology is um, secure being able to securely bond with another person is associated with every factor predicting resilience and health that psychology has ever named. Whereas emotional isolation and insecure attachment is a risk factor for every 
negative dysfunctional response that psychology has ever created. So um, okay, so I think we've expanded the field of, of couple therapy in many yeah. ways, you know. I wonder if we could uh, just cover some of the basics so that the people that aren't familiar with the model can follow you uh, in terms of the vocabulary you're using and some of these ideas. Maybe you can take us to the basics of attachment theory and how that informs emotion-focused couples therapy and really what this model is that you've worked so hard and been so successful um, in implementing in couples therapy. Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's important. One way of thinking about EFT and capturing it very fast is that EFT, you could think about EFT as a model, um, as a conversation. Um, It's a conversation between Carl Rogers, which was my basic training as, um, as an individual therapist, right? It's a conversation between Carl Rogers, who believes that it's the therapist's job to believe in people's ability to grow, who um, was dedicated to non-pathologizing and to listening to people and believing that acceptance and a, a powerful, safe connection with the therapist was healing in itself. So it's a conversation between Carl Rogers, who invited therapists to listen to their client's experience, to take it seriously, and to help their, and to reflect that back in a way that allowed their client to continue to process it and engage with their experience in a different way to create corrective emotional experiences. Um, and then you've got Salvador Mnuchin, who would come in and say, uh, but you have to look at people in the context of relationships and you have to look at the dance, the drama in people's relationships and how those dramas take over people's lives and define them. And you have to find ways to understand these powerful feedback loops, you know, um, that you see people caught in through their whole lives, you know, where they, they, they almost create the interpersonal problems that they have. You know, I shut down. My only way of dealing with my emotions is to shut down and shut you out. When I shut you out, um, I alarm you because you're a, you're a bonding mammal and your brain is designed to be alarmed by the person you count on shutting you out. So when I shut you out, you become alarmed and you become angry with me. And then I hear everything I've ever been afraid of, which is, you're going to reject me. I'm not good enough. So I shut down more. And this kind of feedback loop that I'm talking to you about, um, some folks who are trained just in individual therapy don't really think in this, this sort of systems process orientated level. So it's a conversation between Carl Rogers, Salvador Mnuchin about how to intervene. You've got to look at the relational systems people are involved in and the pattern of interactions, the drama in there, um, how people move their feet in the dance. And you've got to look at how people put their emotions together, their emotional life. And you've got to look at it in a non-pathologizing way. But that's still not enough. If you're going to work with close relationships in couples and families, and even in individual therapy, you have to have this awareness if you're going to be effective you have to listen to John Bowlby, who basically said, we're um, bonding mammals and gave us a map 
to our basic needs and basic fears. Molly said, and this is being borne out now by so much science in our world, basically said, um, emotional isolation is traumatizing for human beings and evokes um, pretty dysfunctional responses because when you're afraid, your whole world narrows down, your response repertoire usually narrows down, your ability to explore and open up narrows down, and many, many of us then get completely stuck. So Balby said, we have to understand ourselves as bonding mammals and how these relationships with others are the keystone of our lives. They're, our, our, they're as important to us as our next breath. So it's a conversation between Carl Rogers, who never met John Bowlby, but I think he would have, um, they would have liked each other very much. You know, John Bowlby basically said that all the dysfunction you see, if you want to call it that, in your clients, all the places that people get stuck are distortions of things that in other contexts would be perfectly reasonable, healthy responses. So um, I think Rogers would have agreed with that. Uh, Bowlby said that, you know, when people are safe and feel safely connected, they are able to be expansive and learn and grow. Um, and, you know, Bowlby would certainly have believed that because he said people need safe haven, secure base relationships. They need safe haven people to go to with their vulnerability. Will they receive comfort and reassurance and get their emotional balance, right? We give clients emotional balance in EFT. They, they need um, a secure safe haven to go to, and they need their loved ones to offer them a secure base to go out from. And this is one of the places that um, attachment really hit a rock when it was being applied to adults because the theory – in psychology was that suddenly at the age of 12, you became an adult and you were suddenly going to be self-sufficient, which, of course, is complete rot. And um, But people said adults, if they're healthy, aren't needy. They don't, they don't need other people. And so um, they would dismiss the whole of attachment science. What we understand now is that um, as adults, there's something called constructive dependency. And that the strongest among us um, and the ones that are able to grow and change and be resilient um, can turn to other people in our own minds and also in, in our lives and use those other people as a resource. And that's constructive dependency. So these ideas, this perspective has taken a while, but EFT, right from the very beginning, um, I was, I guess I did this big outcome study for my dissertation and we got these amazing results. And to be honest, I, I didn't really understand why we got them. I knew it had something to do with, with emotion and helping people have new levels of emotional engagement, helping people open up to each other emotionally and move from painful disconnection. You know, uh, the cliche is that couples, um, Couples get in trouble because they fight. That's not true. All couples fight. The real fact of it is that distressed couples are in moments are in disconnection. It's the emotional abandonment and rejection, the disconnection 
the fact the other person isn't safe that destroys relationships. So, you know, we we got that. I got that from looking at hundreds of tapes of distressed couples and trying to figure out what the hell was going on. And we started changing the emotional music with the couple in order to change the dance. Um, I did this sort of out of desperation, really. It wasn't like I knew what I was doing. I just wanted to help distressed couples. I got obsessed with it. And I couldn't find any interventions in the literature that seemed to work. People didn't want to learn communication skills. They didn't want to make deals with each other. They didn't want insight into their past. They wanted to change their partner's personality. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, you know, I did it. And we got these amazing results, which we published in the Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psych and got me a professorship at the University of Ottawa. But I didn't really understand why we got the results. And then in one of those epiphanies that you only read about in novels, um, I suddenly realized, oh, my God, um, uh, I'd been reading John Bowlby, something about families, and I suddenly realized, oh, my God, um, we're helping them move from emotional disconnection into secure bonding. And John Bowlby wrote about this in Mothers and Infants 30 years ago. Oh, my God, this is all about attachment. And so um, suddenly it was like the structure of everything became clear. You know, people's emotional needs became clear, how desperate, how I started to really understand that when you see an angry partner in front of you, most of the time you're not seeing lack of communication skills or personality disorder or narcissism. You're seeing somebody who's incredibly desperate to be heard, to be connected with, and the more desperate they get, the more angry they become, the more absorbed they become in their emotion, the more they start hitting out at their partner. Once I understood that, once I had the map of, of um, given to me by attachment to people's basic misery and their both basic motivations, it was like um, it was like sitting on it. Suddenly, I was pushing a bike uphill, and the next minute, I'm on a, a fast motorbike. You know, racing around a bend. Everything got clear. Everything got exciting. And at the same time as this happened, my wonderful colleagues in social psychology and developmental psychology were um, Jeff Simpson, for example, in the States, Phil Shaver, Mario Michelanza from Israel. Um, they started pumping out all this research. So um, EFT developed from clinical clinical work uh, with couples, mostly with couples, but also with families. But it also developed in tandem with this whole understanding about attachment. And one of the key things about attachment science is it says that the three factors that define the quality of your most intimate relationships are emotional accessibility, responsiveness, and engagement. And the simplest way to talk about EFT is that what we do in EFT is we help people get their emotional balance and look at the dance that they're caught in that leaves them both alone and desperate, feeling rejected and abandoned. We help them see that. We help them get their balance. And then we help them turn towards each other. 
and gradually, gradually take risks, talk about their fears and needs, move towards what we call a hold me tight conversation in a way that increases their mutual openness, accessibility, responsiveness and engagement. We help them create a secure bond and that secure bond grows their relationship. It grows their resilience and it grows them as people. You know, all the old cliches about how love grows people are completely true. I'm giving you long answers. You can tell me to stop, Joe. Um, I just get caught up in it, but I can just tell me to stop and say, Sue, be shorter. Okay. Okay. I mean, uh, I'm loving what I'm hearing. So, um, oh, all right. Then. Okay. Maybe I'll jump in if, if I want to kind of unpack something sure. specific that you said. So, I, I'd love to hear you talk about these sort of patterns of disconnection that happen. I believe you call it the tango. And yes. maybe you can just give us some examples of the tango. Sure. Well, patterns of disconnection in 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 relation in couples in our society, the most popular one, the most popular show in town is that one person starts to tune into the fact that there's emotional disconnection. They they they're asking the question, "Are you there for me?" and Somehow the answer comes back, no, or maybe. So they start pushing to change the dance, to change the relationship. So they become um, more anxious, more demanding. Um, you know, they, they, and they start sounding critical. They become, why don't you? You never. How could you? Can't you see that? And they start pushing. And the trouble is neither partner is often very clear about what they're pushing for. You know, they might say, I just want you to do chores. But when you really hear it, it's not about chores. It's about, I want to know that if I say something to you that matters to me, that you care. I want to know my pain matters. I want to know my happiness matters. I want to know I matter to you. So we see this this pattern of pursue, withdraw. I get angry and angry with you, more and more desperate. And you um, reason with me or just don't become emotionally available. You turn away. You shut me down. You shut down and shut me out. The more you shut down and shut me out, the more desperate I become. I mean, that's the basic. The, you know, we're obviously reducing a very complex phenomenon to something simple, but that's the most popular dance that creates distress in relationships. So we help people see that dance. We help them see how it leaves them both desperate and alone. And then we help people move into being more open and connected with each other. And the tango that you talk about, which is the, the thing that we do um, in almost every session um, in, across the stages of therapy, whether we're trying to help people see the negative dance they're caught in in stage one or moving into stage two, helping them create new moves in their dance and really open up to each other and help each other with their fears and needs, um, help each other so that their feelings of vulnerability have a solution. And the solution is the connection with the other person. The connection with the other person is the solution to the problems. Once people are connected safely, they can deal with almost any of the other problems they come in with, like sharing chores or parenting or finances or what to do in bed. Um, you can't talk about any of those things effectively if you don't have some sort of team. And the way the therapist does this 
is they do something called the EFT Tango. I dance Argentine Tango. So that uh, label is um, mine. Yeah. <laughs> but the reason I called it the EFT Tango is because um, most people think of tango in terms of Dancing with the Stars, which is horrible. That's just phony tango. That's uh, a theatrical performance. Real tango, which you can see in any city in the world right now, if you stop and go to the local dance, is all about attunement. It's about. It's not about the steps at all. The steps can be amazingly simple. It's about tuning in, being able to stand up with a perfect stranger, listen to some beautiful music, and tune into that stranger's signals, that stranger's intention, that stranger's body moves and emotional tone, and then come together and move together with this music as the structure. So that's why I called it the tango. If I describe it for you very simply, the EFT therapist, whether they're working with individuals, couples, or families, um, in move one is you stay in the present moment. You stay in the present moment and you look with your attachment glasses on at the patterns that are happening in front of you. You look at the emotional patterns and the patterns between people. If you have more than one person in the room or even if you have an individual person who's talking about their relationship with their mother, etc. You look and you say, could you help me? I notice that you speak very fast and that you are very agitated and you talk about being very angry. But then I also notice that there's moments when you you suddenly look down and away and your face drops and you look very sad and you look like you're going to cry. But you kind of push that aside and you go back to telling me your story and being very angry. And the person says, yes, that's right. <laughs> and I'm talking about how they put their emotions together in the present right now in very simple terms, descriptively. No blame. If you want people to open up to you and explore, you can't label them and blame them. They just don't. They won't do it. Why should they? So you look at the emotional process that's going on, and then you look at the in-between. Could you help me? You turn to your husband and you speak in a loud voice and you say, I don't understand why you can't. And you give him a list and you get very upset. And then you, husband, you um, give a few reasons and then you turn your shoulder towards her. You look out the window, you sigh and you go silent. And the more silent you become, the more upset and angry you become, wife. And, um, you know, you've been doing this for how many years? And I'm presuming you do the same dance everywhere, in bed, in the kitchen. Um, you know, you do the same dance everywhere. So you reflect the present process, the dramas that are going on inside people as emotional beings, how they regulate and put together their emotion and how they dance in the dance with others. You reflect present process and that grounds you. It, it, you, you learn how to tune into the realities that are in front of you. Then when you have that, and when you have that, it's part of creating an alliance because people feel like, um, as people say to us sometimes, I don't understand how you understand all these things about me, but you got it. You're on the money. That's exactly, I've never been able to put it together like that, but that's exactly what happens to me in my life or in my relationship. 
So you, you ground people in the present moment and how they put their emotions together and how they put their dances with others together. And then you change the level. Move two. You change the emotional music. Because the easiest way to change how people dance together is to change the music. Lots of luck telling people how to change the music if you don't change the real music that's happening, which is the emotional signals. And you change how people relate to their own experience when you change the emotional signals. So you go in and you change the level. You, you follow the emotional charge. So you say, could you help me as you look down? And somehow your face goes very sad. And I'm not hearing angry Mary anymore. I'm hearing something else. There's something about this that's very difficult. And we teach you in EFT how to do this very systematically. Indeed, we call it assembling emotion. We teach you how to go in and literally help people put together and make sense of their emotional life in the present, in the session. And we help them stay with that. And so Mary, rather than talk about how angry she is and how deficient her husband is, begins to talk about how lonely she feels. And she also starts to talk about how she's always been lonely and she's always been scared that nobody will want her. And she thought her husband was an exception to that. And now she feels that maybe nobody does want her. Maybe there's even something wrong with her. And she's so lonely. So she lashes out at him. So Mary starts to change her level of emotional engagement with her own experience and she starts to go into that, and I'm with her. We work with people in EFT. We don't do things to people. And the key to change is new experience, not new explanations. So I'm with her. So I stay there, and I'm slow and soft and specific. You cannot work with emotion if you don't go slow, soft, and specific. Emotion isn't irrational at all. What it is, is fast. And so to help people really make sense of it, you have to slow it down and you have to make them feel safe. So I'll stay with her. I'll talk about her loneliness. I'll talk about her pain. And then when she is in it, I evoke that emotion and I order it at the same time. Then when she is in it, I go to move three of the tango. I go to move three and I turn back into her interpersonal world and I say, uh, Mary, could you turn and tell your husband, please, right here, right now? I do show you my anger, but what I don't show you is how lonely I feel and how scared I am that somehow you don't want me and that maybe no one wants me. That's so painful. Could you tell him that, please? When Mary and if Mary says, no, I can't, I just, which is interesting because he's heard everything we say, mm-hmm. um, I talk, I say to Mary, could you turn and tell your partner, please, even though you've heard everything I said to Sue, it's just too hard for me to share this with you. What happens to me when I think about sharing it with you is, so I'll slice the risk thinner, but we create these new dramas in session from the new music that we've helped the person play. And the music structures the dance. Emotion structures our inner world, and it structures the dance with other people. So she turns and says this to him, which is a shift. 
and it's towards connection, away from disconnection. And then move four, we process the new step. We say to Mary, what's it like to tell your partner that? And it always fascinates me that even if I'm talking about something very painful, invariably people tell us that it feels good. It feels good to be able to say it in a clear, specific way, in a safe environment so that they can kind of define their experience and feel and, and nail it down. Things that are specific are no longer are no longer terrifying to us. We can handle specificity and clarity. Right? We can't handle catastrophizing, right? So move move four is that I say, what's it like to talk to him like that? And she says, well, it feels good, it feels good. And I say to him, what's it like to hit your wife? And you know, I have to be supportive here because um, he's just heard something foreign. He probably can't wrap his heart and mind around what he's hearing at first because he's hearing something strange. The enemy that's going to attack him has suddenly turned into this person who's vulnerable and who's scared that he's going to shut her out. And couples really don't understand the impact they have on each other at all when they first come in. We, we help them with that. So hopefully he's going to say, I never knew you felt that way. I, I just see you as being angry at me all the time. I, I don't want you to hurt like that. And you can really see that that's the beginning of a whole new, a door is opening there for this couple, uh, for her as an individual, for him and for this couple. If people can't respond, we help them. You know, the worst case scenario, somebody turns and says, aha, I see your vulnerability. Now's my chance to bring out my rifle. <laughs> you know, and um, if that happens, we stop it. and We take control and we, we give them the cue again. We say we make it their issue about processing. We help them process the new dance step, the new emotional music. We say, could you help me? Your wife just turned and said, and you turned and said, I don't believe you for a minute. You're just difficult, just like your mother. Could you help me? What happens to you when your wife turns and says, there's something that's difficult for you to take in there, very difficult. So you sort of respond from the place that you stand, which is that you're waiting for her to say something dangerous, yeah? He says, yes. I want you to notice there's no blame in my voice. I'm describing and I'm standing alongside somebody. So then they will explore it. If I blame, they will not explore it. So, um, and I do this again. I might run the cue past him about four times so his brain starts to look at it as something that isn't quite so alien. And then I help him say, could you help me? It's almost like you're saying, I don't know how to take that in right now. For so long, I've seen you as just angry at me. I don't quite know how to hear what you just said. Is that what you're saying? He says, yes. So I've changed. I've, I've taken the bullet out of his message there. We call it catch the bullet. So he responds to her and says, I don't know how to take it in. But something incredibly new has already happened. Change in good EFT, change, little moments of change happen in every session. And so, um, and then what you do is move five of the tango. You celebrate what I just said. You basically give people the message. Oh, look what happened here. You just did some incredible change. My goodness, you are competent. You do know how to do this. You can make sense of relationships. You're competent. 
you're worthy. You're able to talk about your emotions coherently. You're able to send new signals to your partner. You're getting the message from the therapist that this all makes sense. Wow, look at this. So our dropout rate in, in EFT from experienced therapists is minuscule. It is in our in our sessions too. And I know that it's because of this, that people experience constant moments of change. You know, and of course people get stuck and then the therapist says we're stuck here, right? And we can we can work with that pretty confidently. But and we know where people get stuck after 30 years of this work too. But you know, basically, um, we're relevant for people. We talk about their deepest emotional needs. Um, we we have a direction, so they feel that we know we can take them home, right? We know what home looks like. Um, we know what a healthy relationship looks like. We understand their distress, and in these moments of change, we validate them. We tell them, "Look at you." You grew right here. Look at you. You did something new. Look at that. Isn't that amazing? So the process of therapy, even though it's hard work, becomes rewarding. And we do that tango sequence, that macro sequence, again and again and again. So it grounds the therapist. You know, therapists um, find couples therapy very difficult because there's huge dramas going on and powerful emotional music playing. And if you don't have a direction, the therapist gets as alarmed and freaked out and disorganized as the couple. <laughs> so, you know, um, the structure of EFT, ironically, it's a, it's a very um, in-tuned, uh, flexible uh, therapy that follows the client and then leads the client. But it is also very structured. It's structured in the way it sees what's going on. And it's structured in its interventions, and that creates a lot of safety. Mm -hmm. And we don't have time, I guess, but this is also true, of course, when we're working with individuals. Right. When we're working with individuals, move three of the tango is not, might be with the therapist. Can you turn to me, please? Can you say what you just said to me and look in my face? What do you see in my face? But you often are working with the cast of characters in someone's mind. So you say, could you help me? In move three of the tango, you say, um, whose voice do you hear in your head when you start to um, dismiss your emotions the way you're doing right now and say that there's something wrong with you for feeling this way? Whose voice do you hear? And they say, oh, it's my father's voice. And then so in move three of the tango, rather than asking them to interact with their partner or with a family member, I'll say, could you close your eyes? And can you imagine your father sitting in front of you? What does he look like? Um, what's his voice like? Can you see him? How old are you? And they'll say, can you tell your father? Can you tell your father? Um, I don't know how to listen to my feelings because you always told me they don't matter. You always told me to smarten up and that I was never good enough. So now I don't know how to just listen to my feelings. Could you tell your father that? And People change it. They, you just, you're directive, but you're also flexible. They change it and they start to have a core, almost existential conversation with their father, one they've never had. Um, and this changes. You know, Irvin Yalom, who's a great psychotherapist, who I had the pleasure of interviewing a couple of years ago, said that 
any good therapist, whether they're doing individual, couple or family, has to get to know the cast of characters in their clients' heads because this cast of characters, um, we turn to them for support to deal with vulnerability. We turn to them for knowing who we are, you know. Um, so um, so we do the EFT tango all through EFT. I um... I'm trying to describe something quite complex yeah. in very simple terms, so I hope I'm coming across here. That was uh, like a really awesome overview, actually. And um, I particularly towards the end, you got into getting some clarity, particularly as it applies to individual therapy or how individuals show up to the couple therapy. So doing this tango the way you describe it really requires that the couple or the individual shows up with a willingness or a capacity to be vulnerable. And that No, not at all. Okay. <laughs> but keep going. Okay. Okay. Well, definitely want to hear your response to that. But my understanding is that the therapist has to create a huge amount of safety in the room yes. to, to permit this sort of vulnerability. Um, yes. But even in your examples, there's a sense in which you're going to be asking people to do things that might be very, very difficult for them. And um, in a sense, it's like facilitated or may, may even require a secure attachment to begin with. And so I'm curious to know about how someone's attachment style as an individual personality trait is going to impact any kind of EFT. And how that's different from the security of the attachment in the relationship between the couple or the therapist. Okay, you're asking a lot, right? Yeah. So um, a lot of issues here. First of all, I want you to understand that particularly in, in couple therapy, um, we understand we have behind us the most powerful motivation known to man, which is, especially if we when we know how to turn it on, which is, the motivation is the longing to be connected to another human being and to not be alone in your life. That's the most powerful motivation known to man. Bowlby said that motivation is more powerful than sex or aggression, okay, because it's wired into who we are. It's um, love is an ancient wired in survival code designed to keep us close to people we can count on. And so, you know, it's we know how to work with that motivation. And we know, and we we assume that longing is there, and, and we know be, how to tap. It might be covered up by a lot of um, fear, or yes. or trauma, and, or difficult right. accessing, or these sorts of things. That's right. But if you, um, uh, we've worked with a lot of trauma folks over the years. What we understand about working with trauma, and we have some research on working with trauma, is that when you work with trauma folks. In any kind of therapy, therapy is, takes longer. You have to slice risks thinner. You have to create more safety. And you have to expect um, slips in the alliance at times. And you have to know how to repair them. Uh, but the main thing is you have to go slower. Mm -hmm. And you have, to, you have to go where people are in EFT, not where you think they should be or what your, your therapy manual tells you where they are on, and labels, uh, you know, in the end are a waste of time. You have to go where people are and start there. So, you know, to give you a good example, I just did um, um, an online 
series of therapy with a couple from the Inuit from Inuit from the Arctic, and that uh, gentleman um, had been massively traumatized, and he'd also been an addict for most of his life, and this was pretty new that he wasn't, and he was going to lose his his relationship. There were no resources up there, so I worked with them. And for the first um, sessions, even though I'm only online, he can only tolerate 20 minutes. And um, I stay within his window of tolerance. Um, so I watch his face. This is why it's all about attunement. I watch his face. I, I listen to his voice. And I go with his emotion for maybe 20 seconds. And then I stop. And I tell a story, um, which is really all about him, and he knows that. I'll say, oh, somehow this reminds me of a client who, or I'll talk about me, and I'll say, yes, how difficult is, I find it difficult, we all find it difficult, or I'll turn to his partner, and I'll stay within his window of tolerance, and I'll also tell him, you know, this is so hard for you, you have such courage. I'll validate him and I'll say, and you tell me when this is too difficult or when it's overwhelming, how how can I help you with that? So I'll address the process all the time. I'll stay with the person. I'll respect their limits. So you can work with trauma folks. We, we do very well with trauma folks. We've always worked with lots of military vets. It's kind of our part of our mission. We all the chaplains in the U.S. Army at the moment have to have formal training in EFT hmm. to teach our our um, uh, relationship education courses. Um, you know, so, so and that's a reflection of how we we work with military vets. But the thing about attachment, our big study where we looked at changing whether we could change attachment styles in EFT, and we found we could, uh, which was very rewarding. Um, what we found was that most people who come into therapy are insecurely attached at the time they come in. And certainly that's true in couples therapy. And of course, it's on a continuum. You know, security is on a continuum. Anxious attachment is on a continuum. Avoidant attachment is on a continuum. So we mustn't talk about them as absolutes. But what we found in that study was um, avoidantly attached partners uh, in EFT um, changed a little tiny bit in every session, but they still ended up more accessible and responsive and more able to talk about their emotions. They changed a little tiny bit in every session. Anxiously attached partners, their relationship satisfaction changed a little bit in every session, all through stage one of therapy and, and stage two, but their real attachment style didn't change until these corrective emotional experiences, these hold me tight conversations in um, stage two, where they're able to talk about their vulnerability with their partner and their partner is able to respond to that vulnerability and hold them. And then they're able to articulate what they need to be safe in the relationship. And once those conversations happened, the anxiously attached folks shifted into more security, less anxiety. So, you know, you work differently with people. If I have someone who's very phobic of their own emotion, I go slower. 
I I um, allow them to back off. I um, go very soft and very specific. You know, I make sure they feel safe. We can do all this in EFT, and you can see us doing this. You can go and look at our um, website, www.ieeft.com, the uh, International Center for Excellence in Emotionally Focused Therapy. We have all kinds of training tapes, and you can see us um, do this. And if you come to our four-day externship, which is given in almost every big city in North America right now and across the world, if you come to those ex four-day externships, you'll see us do, you'll see trainers do two live sessions with people they've never met before. And those folks can be anyone from a young couple who've only been distressed for a year to a couple that have been fighting with distress for 30 years to a trauma survivor who's never talked about his emotions in his life to somebody who's on the spectrum and doesn't even know how to label their emotions to a sophisticated set of lawyers from New York who already know everything. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, um, you know, we get, we do live sessions with all kinds of different kinds of people with all kinds of labels, bipolar, um, so borderline. Is one of the, I have a very hard time with the label borderline, but anyway. Sure. Is there anyone that would not be an appropriate client for EFT, um, be it because they're too traumatized or they're too narcissistic or they're too antisocial or, or is it just sort of open season? No, there's, um, of course, there's people that don't fit with this model. You, you can't create a model for everyone. I mean, if you look at couples, for example, our criteria is that you have to be able to create a certain safety in the room. So if somebody is saying, um, I can think of one gentleman that I uh, interviewed at the hospital in, in Ottawa, where he basically believed, he said, I have the right to discipline my wife. I have the right to physically discipline my wife. And these things are not allowable. Um, and, you know, really, I, I, it, her opinion about this is irrelevant. Um, we tried every which way we knew to get to connect with him on a more emotional level. And he stayed there and um, his wife was becoming clinically depressed. And we basically said, no, we can't work with you because we cannot encourage your wife to open up to you when you believe that you have the right to hurt her. Um, we can't do that. And we're very sorry about that because we want you to have a look at the fact that it leaves you completely alone in this relationship. Um, you're holding on to power, but in the end, um, you're pretty alone here and she's withdrawing from you more and more. And we're also very concerned for her. So we wouldn't work with that couple. We wouldn't work. We won't work with uh, a gentleman came in who said, well, you can call it addiction if you like, but I'm very rich and I like heroin. And um, I'm not interested in, in anything about this. And we said, no, we won't work with you in EFT because you can't be present with your partner and you always put heroin first. So she's never the main show in town for you. And it's, we can't see that it's safe for her to open up or rely on you. So we're not going to do EFT with you. So, you know, we wouldn't do EFT with a family where 
there was violence going on that's going to undermine anything that we do. You have to be able to create certain safety. We don't do EFIT with individuals who are openly psychotic, right? right? Or who are so suicidal and refuse to go on meds. You know, we'll have to work with other mental health professionals and get some safety there before we would do that. It's a tricky because some of the labels, you know, I'm a, an experiential humanistic therapist. Labels aren't my favorite thing. I just go in and be with people in the present moment in their process of putting themselves together and their lives together and their relationships together. But so labels, we rely on our, our own assessments of what we see in the room. You know, obviously, I know how to use assessment instruments because I've done all these research studies. But um, we don't really, you know, like narcissistic, for example. Um, I have trouble with that one because um, everyone's narcissistic when they're fighting for their life, you know. Uh, everyone is narcissistic. The most empathic therapist in the world, if they suddenly have their most enormous existential fear come up and hit them in the head, um, their main um, task is to regulate their own emotion. And they certainly can't take their brain and start having empathy for the person sitting beside them. They're not going to make it. So everyone's narcissistic then. I think in my whole clinical practice, I can honestly say that, um, and in all the supervision I've done, I've done a lot of supervision, um, I remember one man that I would call narcissistic. And even then, um, from our point of view, he had very good reasons for being completely obsessed with himself. But, you know, we we worked with him and his wife in couple therapy and we grew him. Now, he we helped him grow. He didn't grow to the level that some other people might have grown. He had a very, very disastrous personal history. You know, but we don't go much with labels. But, of course, you have to be able to create a certain safety in the session. You have to be able to interact with somebody. You know, you can't do that with an active schizophrenic. Um, you know, we, we don't see actively addicted people in couple therapy uh, because we say, you know, you're having a love affair with your addiction and your addiction will always come first here. So you have to at least understand that this addiction has you in its thrall and that you have to at least be willing to look at that and the impact on your partner and be willing to work on it before we can recommend that we would work with you in couples therapy. And some people won't do it. You know, some people, that gentleman that I talked about with the heroin, basically said, no, I want my wife to change and to decide that my heroin is my affair, nothing to do with her. And um, I want her to change. And I have no intention of changing what you call my love affair with heroin. And we said, we're so sorry, we can't work with you. Um, you're so, not going to be available to your wife. One of the things that I find interesting about the application of these principles into individual therapy is that, and again, assuming I'm understanding the model correctly, if someone presents at a clinic or in a private practice or whatever with something we would traditionally think of as an individual person's problem, like an anxiety disorder or a mood disorder or something like that, the assumption, as far as I understand, is that in EFT, you're going to use the therapeutic relationship yeah. um, as a sort of mechanism of action 
to help create this sort of security and this empowerment for them to overcome these uh, challenges on their own? Sometimes. Um, the point is, um, you, you do use your you, you do use you, and the therapist in EFT is very authentic and, and genuinely engaged. Um, it's a different kind of therapeutic relationship than lots of other therapeutic relationships. You know, we talk about therapeutic relationship as a general variable in, in psychotherapy, but it isn't at all because it interacts with how you um, intervene with people. And an EFT alliance is not the same as a lot of other kinds of alliances you would see. So you do use the relationship, and it's a very particular kind of relationship where you are accessible, responsive, and engaged with your client. Um, and some therapists find that challenging and some therapists find it exhilarating. So, but you're also accessing um, people's images and connection with their attachment figures um, in individual therapy. So, for example, you know, um, I can, I don't know if this is relevant actually, but I remember a recent session where um I remember a man telling me a story about his child and how he managed to, he saw himself doing the same thing to his child as his father had done to him, which was dismissing his fear and leaving him alone at just the moment he needed help. And he saw himself doing the same thing to his child and he was able to catch himself um, and turn back to his child and comfort him. So I then said, so could you help me? Um, when you're, we were talking about you feeling vulnerable right now. Can you imagine that the part of you that knew how to comfort your child, let's call it the daddy part of you, that some part of you knew how to comfort your child, even though you didn't get it as a child. Can you close your eyes? What would that good daddy part of you say to the vulnerable part of you? just a few minutes ago was saying there's no solution and there must be something wrong with me to feel like this. How would you comfort, how would that strong part of you that turned back to your child and held him, how would you hold this soft part of you that's in so much pain? So you'll use a part, you'll use their instinctual, um, if you like, the bit that comes out as a parent to a part of self. Or you say, you know, can you remember anyone in your life who gave you what you needed? And somebody who's been massively traumatized with their family closes their eyes and they start to smile and they say, Uncle Sam, Uncle Sam came just on Saturdays for about two years when I was about nine and Uncle Sam liked me. And you say, can you see Uncle Sam? And he says, yes. I say, tell me about Uncle Sam. And they put their hand up in the air. And they say, I was little and I used to put my hand up into the sky and Uncle Sam's hand would come down from the sky and it was big. And they, he'd hold my hand and all the while my hand was in his, I felt safe. And he'd take me to the sweet store and he'd buy me sweeties because I was special to him. And he'd tell me stories and I remember him. And I say, yes, that's right. That feeling of being safe to Uncle Sam, you were special to him. Yes. She says, yes. Say so you were special to him. Yeah, you were special. And I stay with that experience. And she uses the image of Uncle Sam as a resource. 
she uses, she imagines herself talking to Uncle Sam and what Uncle Sam would say. So we use what is more powerful than any therapeutic sure. relationship. We use the power of the person's attachment relationships, either as they've changed in couple therapy or as people access them in individual therapy. We use that resource to help people shift and find their emotional balance. Okay, so um, that makes a lot of sense, except that the, that's an example where a client's coming in with a relational problem. And what I'm asking about is if someone is... Um, no, um, actually, the, 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 uh, the gentleman who came in yes. wasn't coming in with a relational problem. He's coming in with anxiety attacks and depression. But anyway, keep okay. going. Okay, so were, were the anxiety uh, attacks and depression, was the content related to that relational issue that you described, or did, did that sort of come out later? It's always related to an emotional issue because you're a bonding social human being. No, not, not emotional, <laughs> relational. Um, no, he was actually came in talking about how um, he'd lost his job and this was because and he'd become depressed Perfect. because he knew that there was something wrong with him. But then when you okay. you start talking about how does he know there's something wrong with him, right. he starts talking about the fact that well his marriage is falling apart and he doesn't know how to be a dad. And he's decided Perfect. there is something wrong with him. And his wife's telling him there's something wrong with him. And she's probably right. Perfect. And she'd probably be happier without him. Yeah. Perfect. What To me, the crux of the issue here that I'd like to get into is the statement that all of these issues that present are relational. Yes. And I, I'm, very, I'm very curious about that. Um, because relational. many approaches to psychotherapy involve teaching people to self-regulate yes um and, and so i'm very curious to get your take on well are you know are all these approaches less effective or useless and like um no, they're know, not, I, well, I, 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 i'm um i do a lot of i teach people a lot of meditation as yeah. a self-regulatory skill i find it quite powerful for myself and clients and stuff like that and believe me one of the things that I've come to understand through my meditation practice and working clinically in this uh, context is just how impactful relationships are and well-being in general. But I do think that people can learn self-regulatory skills um, and that can, sometimes, sometimes those skills are, I'm wondering if those skills are even important to build upon to, to be able to have access to you know, or to have the capacity to do the tango or to approach relational problems in an open-minded way that, that they're open to vulnerability. So I'm just curious well, to see how you address that. I think if you read, especially the book I just wrote that came out in um, January, you'd get the answer to that. But the bottom I have read I'm, the book, yeah. But I'd like you to, um, and actually, if you're really interested in what you're talking about, you should read a man yeah. called Jim Cohn. C-O-A-N, who is a um, neuroscientist who looks at um, hand-holding, people holding hands with each other in um, fMRI machines. And I just, I did a, um, an fMRI study with him, which you can find on my website. All my research is on the ICEF website. But what he talks about fits very well with attachment, which he basically says, we think our baseline as human beings is self-regulation. And what he talks about is, that's incorrect. Our baseline is co-regulation. That's what we're wired for. 
we're wired for connection with other people and we use our sense of connection with other people, our felt sense of connection, which is what Bobby talks about, and images of other people and real interactions with other people um, to regulate our emotions. That also translates into self-regulation. The, the kid who's good at self-regulation is the securely attached kid who has experienced co-regulation with their parent, right? So it's you, it's cart and horse. What comes first is co-regulation with others, right? And if you look at the developmental psychology, that's very clear. And then when co-regulation is successful, the child internalizes it, internalizes the voice of the mother, the experience of being soothed, and knows how to self-regulate. So that's a huge theoretical issue, but let's flick to right. intervention for a bit. There's nothing wrong with teaching people meditation. There's nothing wrong <laughs> with teaching people, you know, um, self-regulation skills. I think what we need to acknowledge, uh, what I'd like psychology to acknowledge is that they have limits. And that in the end, um, they often fail. And what Cohn talks about is, is first of all, they're hard work and they demand a lot of attention and a lot of focus. And for some people, that's very difficult indeed. And that what Cohn talks about is that um, it's, it's very hard work to always feel that you have to self-regulate and you literally run out of glucose because your emotions are incredibly strong and have existential significance. And so um, self-regulation as a Yes, of course, it's useful to help people self-regulate, but it's not enough, and it's not the main show in town, um, and it's the people with secure attachment who are good at self-regulation, and there's research on that. Um, not the people. But what about the person who? What about the person, let's say, who's single, and doesn't yeah. have an attachment bond in their life? Let's say one person, maybe they're they try to spread it around a little bit. And part of the problem is that it's difficult for them, let's say they're relatively insecurely attached and they have to work through certain obstacles that they face to being open and vulnerable in relationships. And they do a lot of work on themselves to get to the point where they could then open up into a relationship in this way. Yeah, that's um, what we do in, in EFIT. We, we, <laughs> we help them look at how they engage with others. We help them look and understand what's going on with them. Right. We help them get their emotional balance. Um, we help them look at the, the expectations they have of others in the light of their developmental history. I mean, we do that in EFIT. That's right. So some of that is happens through the therapeutic relationship, but yeah. some of it can be skill development, that the person goes home and they practice cognitive restructuring or diffusing from unhelpful thoughts or mindfulness of difficult experiences and they develop the skill to to then engage with the world in a more open and vulnerable way and then they're more open to being in good relationships i think we're getting we're going down the rabbit hole here yeah um but um it depends what you mean by skill uh -huh. i mean from our, my point of view um psychology's fallen in love with you know we need to help a lot of people very fast and mm -hmm. so we've fallen in love with skill development the point right. is lots of times people can't use the skills that we teach them because they're not tied into their emotional world they're not tied into their affect 
And so they can only use them when they don't really need them. Uh, communication skills in couples is a very good example. Mm -hmm. um, you can teach couples communication skills. The point is that when they really need them, when they're very vulnerable, they can't use them. Right. You, so you so, talked about the primal panic, right? Which I think is a very useful yeah. construct here. Yeah. And the research says that, you know, teaching people skills, communication skills um, doesn't work. You know, it doesn't change their emotional, their relationship satisfaction. And couples will tell you very clearly, we, we need to listen to our clients. You know, couples will tell you very clearly that, yes, they can use these skills in the session and that they can learn them, but they don't use them with their partner and they especially don't use them in the moments that matter. So, you know, um, it's it's not an either or. It's not either self-regulation or co-regulation. It's not skill building or new emotional experience. Um, it's not either or. It's like we need all these things. Right. I think, though, in from my point of view, in psychology, because we are so hard pressed to help so many people and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, um, that we've, from my point of view, we've, we've moved away from staying with emotion and helping people grow mm -hmm. on an emotional level into um, quick coping mechanisms and skill right. building and more superficial ways of dealing. But of course, I would think that because I'm an experiential humanistic therapist. <laughs> okay, and, hold on. So um, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. I think it's it's a nice uh, segue into another important question that I had for you, which is when I was learning sort of the history of psychotherapy and the, and the research on psychotherapy, the dominant theory that really dated back to the 70s, and I haven't really caught up with the literature since, but it was this uh, dodo bird hypothesis that, you know, all, yeah. and all must have prizes, that all approaches to therapy are roughly equally as effective. Yes. And and you're what you're saying is actually quite different from that and I'm curious, yes. you know, how, <laughs> like maybe you can just educate us on how the literature has evolved and and if you actually hold the conviction that there are uh, some therapies and EFT might be one of them that's that are actually better like period. Um well better for what? The point is okay. is the therapy on target? Okay? okay. Does the therapy relate to the core elements in the disorder or the stuff you're trying to change and reorganize those core elements or does it just give a little um, shift from the, the intensity of the symptoms and you have to be very specific here but i do talk in the book that i put in january about the the dodo bird thing um i think it's a silliness you know and if you if if you one of the problems with psychotherapy is there's researchers in one tribe and clinicians in the other. Right. There aren't many bridges between them. I spend my life training. I do research, but I spend most of my life training clinicians. Okay. And I enjoy that very much and training them at all different kinds of levels in different kinds of countries. Um, and, you know, um, clinicians don't believe that for a minute. Okay. Right. They don't believe that for a minute. Researchers have been saying it for years. The tricky part is you have to look at what it means. Um, outcome studies in psychotherapy are a nightmare to do. And researchers don't talk about this much. We're just about to do another one. I must be out of my mind. I don't know why I'm doing it. Um, uh, it must be some sort of strange addiction or something. But anyway, um, they're a nightmare. They're difficult. They're complicated. 
you're trying to structure something that is chaotic, you're trying to make everything consistent, you're trying to narrow down your variables so that you can say something specific at the end. I mean, it's trying to capture, it's trying to, you know, put a whole bunch of wild rabbits in a bag, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty difficult. So sometimes we make these enormous conclusions about psychotherapy and as a practicing therapist, I just get irritated and the dodo is one of them. You know, it's like um, what you do is one of the ways they come up with that is that you look at means mm -hmm. and you look at means in many, many studies and you look at means in meta-analyses. The trouble with meta-analyses is they take a whole bunch of studies with amazingly different um, ways of looking at change and amazingly different um, reliabilities and amazingly different levels of rigor and they shove them all together and then they take means of means. Excuse me, this is a very, 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 very rough measure of anything. And to then come up with all these means of means of means in the way we look at it and to say this means that all therapies are the same, um, this is nonsense, right? Therapies, there's lots of variables here. You know, there's evidence that it depends on the therapist, right? I'll give you a nice example of one of the, the studies that's used to make that argument is the big NIMH study on depression, where they looked at um, um, uh, interpersonal psychotherapy and CBT. So they looked at that and they found no differences and they said, ha ha. Well, there's all kinds of problems with that conclusion. One of them is if you look at the manuals for those two psychotherapies, which I did, of course there weren't any differences because the because the damn therapies are basically the same. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you'd hardly be expected to get differences. Nevertheless, where were the differences? Who did this? I can't remember his name. Coombs, I think. Um, I mentioned it in my book. Um, Coombs said, let's look at the people who changed, who really changed in that study. Who changed? And what they found was, Across models, it didn't it didn't matter whether they got um, IPT or CBT. Across models, and this had a lot to do with the therapist. Um, across models, it was the the clients who went deeper into their emotions who changed. Okay, so I thought that was very interesting. So there's so many variables here, but to announce from researchers on high that there's no differences in in an in an, a psychotherapy that is on target for whatever you're you're trying to change and one that is just general to announce that all therapies are the same is ludicrous okay it's i don't think it's got anything to do with the reality of psychotherapy as it's practiced and one of the things i talk about in this book is um Therap researchers have been going on for years about we have to have to integrate psychotherapy. Excuse me, um, it, you know, and they always imply that it's therapists that have to change. Therapists have to become more open to research. I don't think so. I think it's researchers that have to change. They have to come down to help therapists deal with the clinical realities in front of them. You know, so it, it's like um, if I'm if I'm putting together what you've said extrapolating, it seems to me that you would advise 
anyone who wants to consult with a therapist to do work that engages their emotions deeply and that addresses or, or um, leverages the relationships in their life. Those are the most effective things to work on that uh, will produce the best results. Is that a fair statement? I think it is a pretty, it's a pretty general statement, but it's fair. And also I think they go with who they feel safe with. You know, and the trouble is you're asking the public to trust their gut and mm-hmm. their, their and, and that's a tricky one because as professionals, that's not quite good enough. We are, we should be educating the public as to um, how to seek psychotherapy. You know, that the 70% of mental health professionals now say that um, they do couple, they see couples. Mm-hmm. Well, that's disturbing because there's no way in the world that even half those people have any specific training in couples. Okay. And that's disturbing because and people will say, well, I don't really need specific training. You know, I know how to sit and talk to people and couple therapy is just sitting and talking to people. No, it's not. First of all, you have to have a model of relationships. You've got an implicit one. What the hell is it? And you're using it in this therapy and you can be off target and you can do amazing damage. So, you know, it's, what I talk about in my book is that we need a way of integrating and ordering the field of psychotherapy. And right. I'm so, totally biased, but my view is that the only way to do that that is even possible right now is to base psychotherapy on attachment science. Right. So this is very interesting because uh, to come back to something you said earlier, the general public, I think, as you say, is, is sort of reaching out with some sense of urgency to make whatever difficulty go away as quickly as possible. Yes. And and that makes them attracted to tools and strategies and and the new you know the new thing that everyone's talking about. People are not seeking out uh, an attachment bond in a therapist. And I see this very interesting when when therapists uh, start at my clinic. One of the first things they want to put in their bio is, you know, I'm an empathic therapist. I'm a reliable therapist. I'm here for you. Um, I, I really value the therapeutic alliance and this kind of stuff, which they know from their training is hugely impactful in therapy. But I often, I sort of wonder when I read these bios and I think, well, is that going to resonate with what the client's looking for? Because again, I think many clients that visit our website or who are asking around for therapists they don't, they're not necessarily out to find a friend or they don't necessarily think that they need that empathy and, and being present and available. All the things you talked about earlier are that important. They just want the tools to make the thing go away. They want their pain to stop. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's not clear what the link is between an, a a therapist being available and responsive and this sort of thing and the pain going away. (laughs) Well, then it's up to the therapist to be able to talk to the client about what they're doing and why in a way that makes sense to that client and helps that client see that this therapy is going to be relevant. Sure. And and actually that's a lot to do with empathy because, um, you know, I think if you talk to most clients who are working with an experienced DFT therapist, um, you know, they do feel, the stuff is relevant to them. They don't. I, I don't think we, we haven't ever had huge feedback from people that this is somehow obtuse or goes 
in a different direction. We go straight to people's pain, straight sure. to people's fear. Um, and sure. I think- my, my comment was just that um, I, I agree with you uh, about the state of you know, the marketplace, if you want, and that there is a lack of education about the importance of working with emotion and of, of having a certain kind of relationship with a therapist, that those are extremely important variables. I think many people yeah. aren't aware of that. And I think we've actually, I hope this isn't true, but my sense is that we've gone backwards hmm. in Canadian training. Um, I think we've actually moved away from teaching therapists how to connect with their clients and how to start where their client is, how to validate that where their client is right now makes sense before they start asking their client to move anywhere. Mm. Um, we've, we've, we've let go of a lot of that in terms of teaching more and more formal courses, um, you know, doing enormous theses, mm-hmm. um, when the, ther- when the, the, um, the, person is never going to do research again once they get out of graduate school. Um, we've put more and more loads on, on clinical psychology students and we've basically decided we don't have time to teach basic attunement skills, basic skills in how to be with people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very unfortunate. So what we let go of, what I see, what we let go of, other disciplines then pick up. You know, and there's lots and lots of folks that I know who won't seek out a clinical psychologist in Canada because they expect to be given tests or to be told, um, you know, how to change their dysfunctional thoughts and do an exercise at home. Um, They do want somebody to listen to them. So they will seek out um, a registered social worker or they will go and see somebody generally called a psychotherapist and there's nothing wrong with that i mean there's more and more misery in the world to go around we have all we can do we're all busy as hell but you know on one level on the other hand as a psychologist i feel like we've um we're missing the boat somehow you know um where we need to teach our students how to connect with people when they are they're most desperate and they're most disorganized if I can, um, um, if I can, perhaps self-promote here for a second or plug my my bias, <laughs> I, sure. I, I I do think that because um, I I train students um, in my clinic and they all get training in mindfulness meditation, and one of the things that does is just make make people much more attuned to their own and other people's emotions, and they become much more interpersonally sensitive. So yeah, I um, I believe that. Yeah. I just want to say something about that because yeah. I think we're running out of time here. Yeah, we are. You know, yeah. mindfulness is is interesting. Um, there's a book by Germer, G E R M E R, who talks Chris about Germer, mindfulness yeah. and psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. What he basically points out, which I I found fascinating and hits me right, is that he acknowledges that experiential therapists um, have been doing mindfulness for years. Mm. If you take if you take um, you know, uh, John Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness, and you put it up against what Carl Rogers believed a therapist should do, they're exactly the same. Right. You know, an, an EFT therapist, um, uh, you know, calms a client down, stays with that client, encourages the client to tune into their present experience, 
and accept that experience without judgments and without exiting from the experience and stay with that experience and explore it and taste it and see where it goes, you know, and at the same time, as you do this, you're able to do this with more and more balance and you realize that the experience can change and grow and that actually you are creating that experience on some level and that empowers you then to, as it occurs, you can construct it differently. I mean, right. that's a good example of what an EFT therapist does. That's a good definition, John Kabat-Zing's definition of mindfulness. Obviously, they're not totally the same, but, right. you know, um, it's an interesting one because mindfulness is now sort of used in a thousand different ways, yeah. you know, um, and so, but I just thought that was an interesting connection. Sure, and and interestingly, there's a, this strange, um, coming together of a group of mindfulness-oriented uh, therapists and a group of EFT therapists that is growing at Mindspace at my clinic. And oh, I think find, it's not strange at all. I think yeah, it's great. We we just find this so incredibly interesting and rich, and um, yeah, and and we're having a great time with it. Um, so maybe let me just throw in one more question. If uh, if you have another couple of minutes, then we can wrap it up. Is that okay? Sure. Okay. One of the things I understand about attachment theory is that, and you said this earlier, is that um, if someone has a secure uh, attachment relationship, they can go to to this person to recover or get support. Uh, to use your phrase, when the when the dragon comes to get them, when when life's challenges and difficulties arise, but it also provides a secure base to go to then go out into the world and do stuff. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering your thoughts about the potential of the exploratory aspect of secure attachment. Imagine if everyone in the world or many more people in the world had this secure base. What do you think that could do for addressing the the complex challenges that we face these days, whether it's climate change or the breakdown in public discourse or this sort of thing? Do, do, you, do you have any vision about that? Of course. <laughs> I'm an That's an easy one. Just let's just finish up on an easy question, Sue. Can we do that? <laughs> Well, uh, you know, in my last chapter in my book, Love Sense, I talk about this and I talk about how attachment is really a biological theory about who we are as human beings. And if you want to create something called civilization, which I'm not sure we've done yet, (laughs) but if you want to create something called civilization, um, you know, your best bet is to understand who we are and our most basic needs. And what we need to grow and be balanced and open and effective as human beings. And, for example, um, attachment has enormous implications for the education of children, has enormous implications for how we need to help people become better, more attuned parents. Mm -hmm. We should be helping people. Enormous implications for how we should be supporting families. The best investment in the future is to help people parent better to create secure families, to create secure children who have balance and resilience and can work together and collaborate and look at the world's problems, right? I mean, it's that's a very general and it sounds like a cliche, but um, I'll give you some concrete examples. My colleague um, Mario Michelanza in Israel was asked by the Israeli army, everyone in Israel has to go into military service and many, many people have horrible breakdowns in the military training, which is quite serious and quite savage in Israel. So the army asked him, 
how can you stop these people having breakdowns and, and so make our soldiers more effective and make the state more secure, et cetera, et cetera? And he went and he looked at the leaders and he found that securely attached leaders um, created, when they did this basic training, they created better teams, better cohesion. The better teams created soldiers who were more competent, more better soldiers, had less breakdowns, were more effective, could use group problem solving. They were more effective on every level. So Mario Michelas is looking at a huge organization called the Israeli Army and saying, hey, you can improve this. Um, I have a colleague in Washington, D.C., who started to teach all kinds of CEOs all over the U.S. about how you've got to have managers who create secure, um, you know, secure space for their their employees, a secure base, and that the cost of a antagonistic um, power tripping critical manager is significant for any organization. It uh, first of all, it completely discourages employee emotional engagement. So you can look at it from the point of view of industry. You can look at it from the point of view of government. You can look at it in all kinds of, of levels here. But absolutely, it's like um, the biggest resource we have as human beings is our ability to connect with others and to join together as a team to coordinate, mm -hmm. to read each other's intentions. And basically, we're treating that as irrelevant. Mm -hmm. We don't educate for it in our schools. Um, there's very few programs that focus on emotional development, relational development in schools. We don't. Well, I give you, I tell you what, one of the things we've done, which um, we don't know how to sell things. We, our, Everyone's got a place where they're not so good and we suck at marketing. Okay. <laughs> but, um, but, but basically, and from a sort of all kinds of levels, this is a stupid thing to do. But we took the Hold Me Tight book, and it's translated into about six different relationship education programs now. One of them I talked about in the hospital, which is Healing Hearts Together. Okay, and um, we took it and we've done all kinds of things with it. But we've also put it online, www.holdmetightonline.com, because we said to ourselves, "Oh my God, can you imagine?" Um, uh -huh. If all the young couples getting married uh -huh. or if, if people had this easy online course that they could go and improve their relationship, think of what difference it would make. Trouble is we live in a capitalist society, so uh -huh. nobody knows about it, and we're not very good at tacky, tacky marketing, so nobody's buying it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, this kind of thing, yeah, yeah there should be online. I would like Justin Trudeau to – I've said this on other podcasts. I'm going to keep saying it. I would like Justin Trudeau to ask me to donate our Hold Me Tight Online program to Canada uh -huh. and put it up online so that any couple in Canada who wanted to learn about how to have a good relationship that would translate into a more stable family would be able to go online and do, I can't remember how many hours it is, a 12, a systematic, fun 12-hour um, program together um, in the privacy of their home. I think. Governments should be investing in that, mm -hmm. and it's cost-effective. It will um, change. If we're more connected in our society, depression will go down, anxiety will go down, we'll be more effective at problem-solving. I mean, if you look at the impact of secure attachment on people and how it grows people, 
absolutely mind-boggling, mm-hmm. you know, as a variable. Mm-hmm. Um, then you'll, so you say to yourself, why the hell we found this thing? I was just going to ask you that. Yeah. Why, why has it been under the radar for so long, given the magnitude of the, the effect sizes in the sort of personality literature? Because people weren't ready for it, because we are, North America in particular, is based on individualism. Because look at our movies, superheroes, they don't count on any. Oh, the interesting thing is they've started to count on each other. I thought that was interesting. But anyway, (laughs) uh, but, you know, until recently, superheroes, you know, the idea is you're self-sufficient. You count on you. And and anything else is a weakness. We have clients say to us all the time, um, well, I can't talk about that because he or she will see me as weak and needy and immature and mm. they won't want to be with me. You know, um, so we have these mindsets about who we are as human beings and attachment is a revolutionary approach. And believe me, when I used to stand up and talk about it not that long ago, mm-hmm. um, maybe end of the 90s, people would walk out of the room. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then I talk about how emo- therapy had to go to the emotional level. And, you know, the half of the people that were still there after <laughs> I talked about attachment would leave. So, yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm a feisty little thing in the end. So I just kept talking about it. I thought, I don't care. I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> so, you know, um, but I think people weren't ready for it. And now I think they are starting to be because of a horrible reason. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's a horrible reason. But the reason I think is because we are slowly starting to realize, just like we're starting to realize that there's something called climate change, we're slowly starting to realize that we're building societies that have nothing to do with who we are. Mm-hmm. We're building societies where people are lonelier and lonelier, mm-hmm. and it's killing us mm-hmm. to the point where the UK has a minister of loneliness to the point where United Na- the World Health Organization is talking about how depression is going to be the, the biggest problem in the world by some time soon. And I that think we've, we've reached that time, no? Yeah, um, almost, I think, yes. And, um, and the, also that a key issue here is lonely. You know, more and more people live alone. I think I put it in love sense. I can't remember the exact stats. I think it's one third of people in the U.S. say they have no one to confide in at all. Mm-hmm. Um, this, is, this is like taking fish out of water mm-hmm. and suggesting that the fish function at a very high level. It's not going to work. We are social bonding human beings. We are, our brains and nervous system are basically designed to function in small groups of about 130 people for our lives and to count on those people and to know that if we call, people will come. And now we've lived, the world has evolved. It hasn't evolved. We've evolved it. And we live in more and more isolated lives. And that is going to be an issue whether we like it or not. It's going to, I mean, it's interesting. Um, my son is a town planner, and, you know, we talk a lot about how we don't build cities or even little communities um, looking at things like equality, things like um, how to help involve people in the community and how to help them connect. We don't. We put people in little groups. We say, this is a senior's residence. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a school. This is a 
This is a home for homeless people. We don't look at, you know, how to connect that. Um, I must admit some of my prejudice here or my bias or whatever you want to call it is I grew up in an English pub. Mm-hmm. And an English pub was um, really a community center. And everyone cared for each other in that pub. So when somebody had a, um, a flashback from their experience in the war, um, all the other men would come in and hold that man while he cried and take him in the back room. And my mother would take him soup and put her hands on his shoulders. And everyone in the community would connect. And when the old gentleman came in who was lonely and every night he came in and he said the same thing to everybody in the pub, nobody said, you're boring or walked away. They all answered him and they bought him a pint (laughs) (laughs) and they included him in their jokes and they made sure that Jim felt included in the, so we, we don't, we are losing this awareness of ourselves as social beings. Um, it's, it's, it's very fascinating. I've just come to the West coast Mm -hmm. and, um, the first few months here, I came here when I was, first came to Canada and um, I had forgotten living in the East, um, the very focused, task-orientated East mm-hmm. for 30 years. I'd forgotten that when you come to the West Coast, people expect you to look them in the eye and say hi. People expect you to connect. People expect you to talk to them. And I said to my husband the other day, you know, living in Victoria I feel like if I fell down in the street in Victoria, I'd be killed in the crush of people coming to help me. (laughs) Whereas if I fell down in the street in a big city in the east, um, people would ignore me, at least for the first little while, or in some of the big cities that I've been in the world, they'd actually step over me because they're too busy. Well, Sue, Um, you just upped the ante for me. We got to get you to come to Montreal. I (laughs) I don't want you to fall down in the street. But there is a a warmth and a sense of community here that I think is unique in North America. That's great. And and um, hopefully there will be a moment where we can get you across the continent and maybe talking to some of our people in our community here and get your sense of what the community atmosphere is like here. Would you be well, up for that sure. at some point? <laughs> and by the way, you have great tango in Montreal. Cool. We have superb tango in Montreal, and I do still go to Ottawa for the summers uh-huh. because uh, because I still love that city, and I have so many people I love there. So you know, but sure, I I like Montreal. I wasn't trying to put anyone down. <laughs> I'm just saying that you know this is a I think this is a global issue. You know, right. for governments to start having ministers of loneliness, mm-hmm. um, this is a this is a global issue. You know, we're not designed for it. We're not wired for it. It doesn't work for us. Well, in another podcast, we'll talk about the impact of our smartphones and social media on all of this. Ah, <laughs> I won't get you yes, started. Are they a help or are they a hindrance? Yes. Right. So maybe uh, for uh, another conversation. Sure. Um, before I let you go, is there anything else that you think uh, we haven't covered and we really should before we sign <laughs> off? Well, we've had a very... Um, interesting and rather profound conversation compared to many podcasts. So to tell you the truth, um, I can't remember if there was anything we didn't cover. I think think we covered a lot and it's been great fun to talk to you. 
Oh, it's been great fun for me as well. And I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm certainly going to put links to, you know, the books and your website and all the references that you mentioned uh, over the course of our conversation so people can have access to it. That's great. Again, thank you so much. And if you want, um, I'll put, uh, if you send it to me, I'll put this out on my listservs too. That would be awesome. Okay. So thanks again, Sue. Wish you a, a wonderful weekend and uh, take care. Thank you so much. Take care of you. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Mindspace podcast. I hope it was inspiring. If you feel the world could use a little more Mindspace, please consider supporting the podcast. The best way to do that is to leave a review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you listen, or share your favorite episode on social media. Thanks and be well. Thank you.